One of the joys of living where I do in St John's Wood is that Primrose Hill and Regent's Park and the Regent's Canal are very close by, especially useful if you have a Siberian Husky who needs a good deal of walking. It's an open question whether I walk her or whether she walks me, and we both need the exercise. And so I often find myself passing across Primrose Hill and looking at that magnificent view that you have, especially by night, over London and over the growing towers of London, over Canary Wharf, then of course there's the city with the gherkin. Over the last couple of years I've been watching the shard springing up next to London Bridge and now the cheese grater is the new arrival that's back down in the city again. One tower after another being thrust skywards in demonstrations of display and grandeur by the great insurance firms or the great banks of our financial world. And as I pass across Primrose Hill, because I'm that sort of person, various bits of scripture come floating into my mind. I often reminded of Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem and shedding tears of compassion over it. Or I see Amos's rather chilling vision of the plumb line hanging over the city in judgment. And I wonder what the city will look like when my successor walks there in three or four hundred years' time, whether the great towers will still be standing, whether there'll be gap-toothed ruins, whether it'll be like Lepkis Magna and the Colosseum. Who knows? And sometimes the text that comes into my mind is the reading that we had as the first reading this evening. Jeremiah's scathing critique of those who use all the resources, all the material resources they can find to make themselves bigger and more splendid palaces, bringing the choicest cedars from Lebanon, painting them in expensive vermilion, sparing no expense to be better and grander and more splendid than their neighbours. Do you think you'll be a king, says Jeremiah, because you compete in cedar? The criticism is so fresh and it's still so pertinent when one reflects upon the various imbalances and inequalities that lie behind these soaring towers of steel and of glass. But though the competing in cedar may be as questionable now as it was in the, uh, sixth, the early 6th century BC, is the competition itself necessarily a bad thing. One could, after all, compete not in the painting in Vermilion, but compete for justice, compete to do good. You get that in St Paul's letters quite a bit. He's gathering together a collection of money to support the church in Jerusalem for all sorts of reasons, and he stirs up one church with a sense of competition the uh, Macedonians, that is to say the church in Philippi, has been immensely generous, he says to the Corinthians. You're not going to be less generous than them, are you? So he appeals to uh, competition, or to use a nice old-fashioned phrase, the spirit of emulation, to G the Corinthian church up to the mark. There's perhaps good health uh, in competition. We're familiar with that idea from so many parts of our experience. You see it in sporting life. You see that drive to excel all others, which is what leads a person to the kind of ascetical regime that makes them win a gold medal. That urge to outstrip all others for the sake of the glory. 
and there's something admirable about it. Two or three years ago, I went to see that film Senna, a documentary film about Ayrton Senna and the world of Formula One. And it suddenly struck me that I had in stepped entirely into the world of the Iliad. There were these godlike young men competing with one another to excel all others. Nominally, they drove for a team. They played, as it were, or they fought, as it were, for the Greeks or for the Trojans. But really, they're in it for themselves. And the young are constantly snapping away at the heels of the heroes of the older generation, people like Agamemnon, who now run the sport, so to speak. And there's the impatience of the young, of the brilliant, and over it all hangs the extraordinary sense of mortality, the pathos, because you know how Ayrton Senna's story is going to end, just as when you read the Iliad, you know how the story of Hector is going to end. And so the drive to be simply the best so a very strong and natural force in our human experience. And why not? You know it here. I failed to check before the service began as to whether Oriel was still the head of the river or is about to recapture that position. But I've no doubt that it's a good and a legitimate aspiration. Academic life is full of the desire to do really good work and, of course, to bask in some of the glory that comes with doing really good work and being recognised to do really good work. And even when, as in the natural sciences, the brilliant individualist can scarcely find place now, and it's a matter of working in large teams, the teams compete with each other. They compete with each other for funding, but they compete with each other more fundamentally to do really good work. So competing in cedar, painting in vermilion, the misallocation, the misdirection of precious resource. But the spirit of emulation, perhaps we can still see a great deal of good in that very ancient idea. But even that must surely have its limitation, must have a place where it doesn't apply any longer. And the point where I think the spirit of emulation comes to a complete end is when we think of what, for religious people, is the most fundamental thing about human living, the desire for God, the longing for God, the hope of the vision of God, of the experience of God. Because when we take the infinity of God against the finitude of all human experience, competition for the vision of God becomes a nonsensical idea. We, small, unworthy as we are, longing to uh, be drawn into the mystery of the beauty and the holiness and the goodness of God, that's not a place where we compete to be the best any longer because we're being drawn into the love and the beauty of a best that is so much greater than all that we are capable of. And yet, here's an interesting problem. In the Divine Comedy, in the Paradiso, Beatrice takes Dante on a tour through heaven. They set off from the top of the mountain of purgatory and they fly through the successful spheres of paradise, beginning with the paradise of the moon, which is a rather pale uh, sort of place, uh, the person that they talk to there, Pierre de Ptolemais, she always reminds me of a convalescent painted by Gwen John. We're in a land of um, etiolated and pastel colours in the heaven of the moon. And that's because the heaven of the moon is populated with people who loved in this life, but they didn't love very much. They hadn't enlarged their capacity for love all that much. And as Dante is taken through the successive heavens, he sees people in greater and greater felicity 
the eternal joy becomes brighter and more intense all the way through the planets, which for him, of course, only extend as far as Saturn, because the others had yet to be discovered in the early 14th century. And Dante says to Beatrice, more or less, is this fair? Are these really gradations in blessedness? And if it is, how is it fair that some people seem to be more happy than others? Beatrice gives a splendid answer. She explains to Dante that what he sees is an allegory, that actually all the souls are experiencing the same thing. That which they experience is the vision of God. But they have in their earthly lives trained themselves up, if you like, to different capacities of loving. And the greater their capacity for charity, the greater their openness to experience God, the greater is their happiness. And it's that that's being allegorically represented in the various spheres of paradise. It's an interesting idea, but add one more to it. And that is the notion that our capacity for growth does not end with death. That just as the mystery of God's love and beauty is infinite, so our capacity to explore it and our capacity to desire it and to enter into it is also infinite and will be infinitely extended in eternity. No room for emulation there, because what is offered there is in the end the total satisfaction of an infinitely enlarged desire for the mystery and the beauty and the love of God, to whom be ascribed might, majesty, authority and power and glory, now and always. Amen.